Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us this opportunity to continue to learn about your word. And as we look into it, it's not just a matter of learning facts and figures, learning when, where, and how, and those sorts of things. Ultimately, you reveal yourself in your word. We get to know who you are. We get to know your character. We get to know your commitments. We get to know how you, Father, have committed yourself to this world and to your people, how in sending your Son, Jesus Christ, you revealed the fullness of yourself through him, and you have done everything so that we might enjoy you forever. Father, that is the end goal, that we would indeed live to glorify you, but live also to enjoy you. You are our highest end. And so as we continue studying what the Catechism teaches, we pray that it would not just simply be academic knowledge, but that we would be drawn closer into a relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, drawn closer into an appreciation for the redemption, as the author of Hebrews calls it, that oh-so-great salvation that you have bestowed upon us, and a greater appreciation, Father, for what you would have us do in response in gratitude. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in question 28 of the Catechism. We've been looking at Jesus' humiliation, and by humiliation, we saw that last week, we did not mean, you know, uh, like ridiculing him, ha-ha, kind of humiliation, but his humbling, and humbling which consisted, as we saw, the fact that he was incarnated, God becomes man, and he did so in a low condition, i.e. very poor, um, marginalized, he, the one who created all things, submitted to his own law, suffered all the miseries of this life, suffered the wrath of God, which he did not deserve, but we do for our sin, remained under the power of death. And we called that his humiliation. So we're going to flip the script today and we're going to look at Christ's exaltation. In fact, let's go ahead and read it first and then we will dive in. Does anybody have that question and answer 28? If you'll please read that. All right, thank you so much. So here we're dealing with the reverse, Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. In fact, if somebody will do this, we're going to be looking up Scripture. While I'm writing stuff, stuff up here, let's take a look at Philippians 2, and let's read verses 5 through 11. And there we see Paul first describing the humiliation, and we're going to see the language that of of the humbling and of the exaltation is not something that the that the uh, the writers of the catechism invented. It's actually taken straight from Paul. So, if somebody will read Philippians two, five through eleven. All right. Thank you so much, Jacob. Wonderful passage that we will have opportunity to look at on more occasions than this one. So, you notice what Paul is saying in Philippians two. He, referring to Jesus, humbled himself. Did anybody humble Jesus externally? No. He chose to do all those things that we had listed up there. He chose to humble himself, to take on human nature, to deal with the deprivations of life, to ultimately take upon himself the wrath of God and die in our place. He chose that for himself. And yet, did he exalt himself? What does it say? God highly exalted him, right? So we're going to be looking at that here. But the, so you look at that language in uh, 5 through 11 of Philippians 2, and you see there's a language of being humbled, and there's a language of being exalted. So the catechism writers didn't invent that. They are using it straight from Scripture. But it's very interesting to see that, that humiliation, as we call it, is something that Christ chose for himself. 
but he did not choose to exalt himself. That is something that God does. We'll unpack that a little bit on here. So as we, uh, as we look at what it means to be exalted, this is an area where I think um, evangelicalism has uh, not spent a whole lot of time talking about it. We put a lot of emphasis, as well we should, on Jesus' substitutionary death, on the fact that it is a sacrificial death. But by itself, it has to, well, it can't, you can't just put it out there by itself. It has to be part of the total package. And that package includes the exaltation of Christ. And those things matter. Every one of these elements that we're going to look at. So, for example, when we look at the so-called high priestly prayer, that's John chapter 17. Uh, in fact, Imad will be covering that fairly soon. Not quite sure when. Um, but very soon, next, if not today, then uh, quickly. So in that prayer, Jesus is praying for his people. And he says in verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify me with that same glory with which I had before the world was. So Jesus was seeing as his hour came, his hour referring to his death and then later his burial and, and, and his, exalt, his resurrection. He's talking about being glorified. So the exaltation, uh, not that Jesus' glory was erased, but it becomes muted, as we talked about a little last week. Uh, people could not see when they looked at him. They just saw a person. Uh, you know, they didn't see somebody was shining with a halo or whatever as the pictures show. We're seeing now something that's going to be different. So let's go ahead and take this ap uh, apart. What's the very first thing? If we look at the catechism question, of which consists the exaltation, what's the first thing it says? So his resurrection, the resurrection is at the very heart of Christianity. There is no Christianity without it, and that is why so much has been, uh, uh, so much ink, so much uh, violence, so much everything has been directed at undermining and destroying the idea of the resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, if there is no resurrection, we are the most pitiful people that have ever been uh, because we've, we're basically wasting our time. Uh, there's a quote that I've used. I think I threw it into one of the um, bulletins coming uh, soon, or if it hasn't already. I, they kind of all blur because we do them several weeks out, so I don't remember when we did them. And I don't remember exactly who said it, but it was along the lines of... Um, if, there is, if, if the resurrection of Christ is true, it's the only thing that, it's the only thing, that, no, how do you put it? If the resurrection of Christ is true, nothing else matters. And if the resurrection of Christ is not true, nothing else matters. I mean, you know, it's basically uh, something along those lines. Basically saying it is the, the central event, as you've heard me say in the past, of all human history. All history leads to the resurrection. All history flows out from it. The resurrection is, in essence, the firing shot, as it were, the, the, the opening salvo in the restoration of this universe. Yeah, we look at the whole thing, you know, the incarnation, his life, his death, resurrection. But it is in the resurrection that we have that first blast of saying um, the, uh, uh, the restoration has begun. And it starts with Jesus. And because he is our federal head, to use the language of Paul in Romans chapter 5, in the same way that Adam is our federal head in the downfall of humanity in the fall, 
Jesus is our federal head, our covenant head, in the restoration of humanity and the restoration of creation. So uh, the resurrection is really at the heart, and it has been uh, under attack from the very beginning. So uh, I might take uh, a moment some, some other time perhaps to delve more into some of the things that happen. I'll just simply say at this point that, you know, uh, if, if you've been in the church for a while, especially if you're over, I'm going to say at least 35 and over, you would at least have some remembrance because um, it doesn't happen as much today. But uh, let's say even up through the 90s, uh, a lot of what was going on in churches was people defending the resurrection, the reality of it, because the attacks on the resurrection were driven from a modernist viewpoint. That is to say, um, scientifically, we all know that people don't rise from the dead. So what's really going on here? You know, what's a, And so the liberals would try to attack it on grounds of, of science, essentially. That was a modernist attack. And you would have seen evangelicals and, you know, uh, people doing uh, ap- apologetics, sermons being preached on the reality of the resurrection, why we really knew it was so, and, and, and so on. As the 90s gave way to postmodernism, uh, postmodernism has been around since the 1940s, that might surprise you, but that's a story for another day. Uh, but when it arrived in, in much fuller force in the 1940s, the, 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 the attacks have shifted. They're still trying to undermine the resurrection, but it's not happening in the same way uh, you know, so sometimes the churches, like, just like all militaries, are often fighting the last battle, the last war. They're preparing for it and everything, and then a new kind of warfare comes, and they have to adapt, and it takes them a while to get a hold of it. So the church is sometimes still having its guns trained on defending uh, the resurrection. And, and look, those purple-haired, you know, uh, folks that are running around with uh, you know, tats and piercings, and I'm not knocking if you want to have a tat or a piercing or everything. I've tried Mary Jo, and she won't listen to me. But, um, but you know, all the, the kind of crazies that are out there who are rejecting all sorts of things uh, and, and turning our society into a free-for-all, those folks are not too worried about what science is saying in regard to the resurrection. That's not where their rejection of Christianity is coming from. So it's uh, interesting to note that the way they look at things is very def- different. Um, how does the resurrection tie into where their attacks come from? One of the things we're going to see is if the resurrection is real, then it changes our behavior. See, that's really the whole of scriptures that present certain things as true. And you must believe them, but then you must live by them. And people who are uh, not genuine Christians, let's just put it that way, Uh, will fail at one or the other. There are people who do not believe uh, what's in in the Bible. Uh, They don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe this. They don't believe that, whatever. And then there are people who do believe, but then they don't live out their faith. And this is not the the time and the place to do it, but Scripture makes clear that uh, those folks are not believers. good place to look is 1 John. Um, the whole letter of 1 John is built around those two, then there's one more test that you can see whether a person is a believer or not. Do they actually believe what the scripture says? Do they then live it out in a consistent way? So if the resurrection is real, then you will evidence in your life resurrection behavior. That's where the attack comes today. Anyway, that's a separate point for some other time. I just want to bring that out. Because of the importance of the resurrection, it really is 
the focal point of so many of the criticisms and attacks on Christianity. So, what is the resurrection? What happened at the resurrection? Anybody want to take a stab? No, you guys are so... Have you all been partying already? Whole Memorial Day? You didn't wait for tomorrow? You've all been gone since what? Thursday probably. What is the resurrection? What happened? That comes later. Luego. Before he goes in his ascension, which we'll get to, you have the actual resurrection. And what is the actual resurrection? Okay. And, and does that mean that his spirit rose in our hearts? I'm asking just for what, what happened. Was there a body in the tomb, a physical body? Okay. Is that body still there, but Jesus rose in our hearts? No. I mean, this is actually what has been taught. Uh, uh, there are at least several churches in town that I will tell you this is exactly what they're teaching. They'll use the word resurrection. You think that we're on the same page, but if you scratch, you know, uh, underneath and you look this is what they're talking about so no there's a real body Jesus really died which is why last week under humiliation it made a we made a point he was really under the power of death he did not I'm going to use some 19 early nine, uh, 19 uh, late 19th century language there was something called the swoon theory anybody hear that that Jesus swooned on the cross um, nobody gets the tar beaten out of them like Jesus did literally uh, you know, get the tar beaten out of you that would k- have killed most guys and then get nailed to a cross that kills every guy who's on there, then gets uh, a spear stuck into his side and just swoons and then wakes up a few hours later, okay? But let's just set that aside as the stupidity of it. But he really was dead. And because he was really dead, you know, that... That, that was the end as far as normal, the way things work. So the liberals and the modernists who attack the resurrection on the, on, on, the, uh, uh, on the foundation of science do have one thing in their favor. People do not come back to life spontaneously. This is a pretty established fact. But that's what establishes the, the miracle of the resurrection and why it's a breakthrough because death is the curse of the fall. It is the, the epitome of that curse. It is the one thing that you can never escape. We can do all sorts of things to minimize it. We can push it off. We can uh, mitigate it, but sooner or later, right? As Christians, we have to be honest and face that reality. Every single person faces the reality of death. It is the ultimate and the epitome of the curse of, um, that, that came because of our fall. So that's what makes the resurrection so um, extraordinary is that it defeats death. So Jesus' body actually rises and becomes uh, alive again. And, and, and I'm saying, what I know you're all saying, he's just saying what we all know. I want to be sure that we understand what the resurrection really is. Now, we have some accounts throughout the Gospels of the resurrection. What can you tell me about the resurrection body? You've all been reading your Bibles. Come on, I'm getting... What's, what about Jesus' resurrection body? What do we know from the gospel accounts from 1 Corinthians 15? It's glorified. What does that mean? That's good, good church language. So what does that mean? Okay, new, perfect. I, I like that. Those are all good. Those are all good. Um, yes, now that's Jesus, and he's the only one. It's an interesting um, point to make that in heaven, the only imperfect person will be Jesus. Always to remind us. Of what you know, and by I don't mean morally, he was always has been and will continue to be morally perfect. But in terms of his physical 
uh, nature. He will be the only one who bears any, um, uh, any imperfection in that regard. But so we see certain things that he does, right? Um, he is, uh, as for, is he at first recognized? Mary Magdalene? She's like, what? what? And then finally it sinks in. The disciples on the road to Emmaus are some examples of guys who don't quite, or girls we don't know if they were male or female. Um, did they pick up on, on who he was right away? No, they didn't. So there's something extraordinarily different about this person uh, when he's raised from the dead that at first uh, he's not recognizable. Not because, you know, he looks radically different, but there's been enough of a change that it's not what you think of. But on second, you know, look, oh, it is you. you know, maybe it's the eyes, it's the smile, or something, you know, what, whatever it was, but he recognized it. But there's, there's something that is so transformed. Yeah, that's an excellent point, is that all these other uh, resurrections that either Jesus, uh, or like we see Paul doing, of course, we can go to the widow um, uh, when the pro- with, uh, with Elijah and... Um, Others of that nature, they're all uh, temporary resurrections. That, that person's exact same body is brought back. There's no transformative change. And yes, and those people die. So that's a very good point, and thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, we are talking with Jesus, that transformative change that exhibits the new world, the new, re- the, the, as we say, the restoration of all things. So there's several things then along those lines. You know, when you see uh, somebody uh, being raised like Lazarus, uh, nobody has any problem recognizing it's Lazarus. It looks just like him. With Jesus, the change is, is um, substantial enough. They have to have that second look. But what we can say is it's still Jesus. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's a good point to say. You know, uh, Right. I mean, so some of the things that we see in Scripture is language used, you know, without corruption, basically. So, yes, I mean, we don't have to wait to die for, to experience corruption. If you've ever been to the doctor, you already know you're in the process. From the moment that you are born, you are dying. Just think about that. From the moment you are born, you are dying. That's sometimes hard for parents to deal with when they look at that tiny, shiny, you know, brand new little baby. But that baby's already dying, so the whole of our lives as parents is to prepare them for that moment. That's really all we're doing as parents. We're preparing them for that moment and everything that that entails, of course. Um, but the recognition then that, um, uh, yes, that, that, that is now a body that is forever, that will be without suffering, that will be um, perfect, new, eternal, you know, all that kind of uh, language that we're using. But I so, so it does tell us something about the body, and that is that, it is, in one sense, a different body. Paul calls it, in 1 Corinthians 15, a spiritual body, but this does not mean that it's ephemeral, that it's ghostly, okay? It is perfectly united to, to Christ and is now perfectly uh, matching his nature. Does that make sense? That's the reference. In fact, Paul, Paul makes that pretty clear as he goes on. So if you just take that out of context, that one line, you might say, oh, yeah, it's a... It's not a physical body. What we see with Jesus is that it is a physical body. Do we have any proof that it's a physical body? Say again. Was touched? Yes. Come and come and touch me. And he says, you, "You'll see that I'm not a spirit," because that's one of the things the disciples are. Are we seeing a ghost? Right. Uh, he goes to the the beach, to the shore, while they're fishing. And what does he do for them? Yes. And then he 
eats, okay? So what we have here is a physical body, uh, but it is a transformed body. So his identity is the same, even though his, uh, the characteristics of the body are different. And so we can expect the exact same thing. It'll still be you. Now, you might say, okay, what happens if Jesus comes back, you know, in the next 10 minutes and there are going to be people maybe dead for the last 100 years who you can say are, if I dig them up, they would still be sort of recognizable. I could see a body, you know, and so on. Uh, you know, maybe um, uh, a bit more withered than, you know, than others, but still recognizable. But what about people who after literally thousands upon thousands of years are nothing but dust? Or people that got vaporized in one shot, you know, like when the, the Twin Towers came down on them, right? That kind of, you know, what are we talking about in terms of how, how is Jesus going to raise that body? Okay, first of all, I, the, the short answer is if he can make all things out of nothing by the word of his power, I think he can handle this. So that, that, that's the first thing. And it is in that sense a matter of faith. Just like we believe one, the creation, we can believe two, the recreation. So there's that aspect of, no, no doubt it's an aspect of faith. But if you do want to look at it a little bit more on the science side, just think about this. Every seven years, every cell in your body is replaced. It doesn't, doesn't mean that on the seventh year, you kind of get put in a chamber and, and a new you comes out. But in the process of regeneration and so on, your cells are constantly being um, uh, duplicated and replaced. And that process gets um, less uh, efficient as you, go, uh, as you get older. And that's literally why we look different as we age and so on and so on. Scientists are talking about, oh, we're going to reverse it. Now nah, you're not going to. Uh, we, can, we can prolong life and all that, and medical science is wonderful, and we should pursue those things. But I'm saying we're never going to cheat death uh, because, um, well, God said so. <laughs> so then there's that. But uh, what we're talking about here with um, uh, our bodies and our cells is who's the real you? Is the real you the atoms that you carry, the molecules that make up your body right now? Or was it the one that you had, let's say, 14 years ago? I say 14 so we can double the seven and be sure that we've wiped out everything. Everybody here is at least 14 years of age from what I can see. So who's the real you? Your identity hasn't changed. Uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that, that the molecule in his, uh, in his chin served somebody else very well, you know, for years. It's that exact same molecule that was in somebody else. Think about that. Right? You go ahead and you kill that cow and then you make a steak and you eat it. Those molecules that were part of that cow are now part of your molecules. You see the point? The point is your you is not tied directly to those things. So somehow God can take the same dust or whatever and transform and bring back your body. And it is your body, even if it's been, you know, wiped out because of age. Does that make sense? And it will be you. And it will be your body, okay, just transformed. So uh, let, let me just say some more things about that because there have been all sorts of things that have happened. Um, oh, yeah, Timothy. So, there, there's no doubt that there's a physical economy post-fall. In, in that regard, I just wouldn't call it part of life. People see it as natural, as just part of the, the, the created natural order. It was not part of the created natural order. Um, and so the most we can sit there and say is wrongly that as the world evolved out of nothing, <laughs> uh, they have more faith than Christians do when they say nonsense like that. But um, 
Yeah, the most, you know, the most that could be said is that when the world came out of nothing um, and, and evolved, that that was part of the, the, the evolution, that that was built in. We're rejecting that and saying death and that whole cycle, which is, which is a real cycle. It wasn't denying its, its, um, uh, its existence as much as that it's, that it's normal. And that's why I say death is the most abnormal, the most unnatural thing. Uh, so that's where we're going with that. So what are some of the things that people say about the resurrection to try to undermine it? Just to hit on some things uh, without getting into too much detail. One of the ones you often hear about the resurrection is that perhaps these guys were so excited, so excited about Jesus that they, you know, and, and, and so sad that he had died that they just imagined the resurrection because, you know, these things don't really happen. So this is just in their head, right? They just kind of saw what they wanted to see. Uh, you know, they were so grief-stricken that you didn't, you know, and you just so want to see your loved one, and so there he is. Okay, the biggest problem we have with that is, again, all our data coming from the texts of the Gospels is that the disciples were completely taken aback. They were not expecting the resurrection. You can't imagine something that you, that you can't imagine. Does that make sense? You won't imagine something that's not even in your imagination. They never even thought about the idea of a resurrection. When it happens, they were like, what? So they weren't like, oh, you finally made it. We were waiting on it. No. So that's the first thing you do if you're just going to go by the accounts. Again, we're not talking about the physical evidences or whatever. You'll never be able to prove to your still modernist friend over 60 because uh, they're the only ones who seem to care now. But... Um, You're never going to be able to prove to him the reality of the resurrection, okay, in in some kind of scientific method. But in terms of working with the text, that does not make sense to say that they imagined it because it's very clear that they had no idea. They were wholly surprised by it. The other one that you hear all the time is that they just simply lied. They knew he was not uh, uh, anything other than dead. So they might have stolen the body, they might have hit it, but they lied. And the answer that usually against that which history is so clear on, these were people willing to live for, a, uh, to die for a, for a lie. I mean, it's one thing when you sit there and believe in a cause, you'll go so far. But when they're putting the screws to you, I mean, anybody who's been in law enforcement knows that you can eventually get somebody to flip, right? You see it on all the TV shows, right? You get one guy in the one room and then you get the other guy in the other room and you get them to, uh, to turn on each other, right? Because you turn the screws on them. You start literally turning the screws on these people and they're, they're holding to the lie that Jesus uh, rose from the dead. You think sooner or later somebody would have cracked, right? And do you think that really the, the disciples had power to, you know, you might say, well, they, they're the ones, to using today's language, they're the ones controlling the narrative. They didn't, it, let me put it in today's terms, they didn't own the media, they didn't own the entertainment industry, uh, they were the, the most marginal of the marginalized, okay, there was no CLM, Christian Lives Matter. There was nothing pushing for them. They were the very dregs. If one guy would have cracked, that would have made the news. That would have been all over, right? Bill Maher would have been, see, I told you, and all that kind of stuff and whatever. So that goes out the window. Then there are just some people who say, it's a miracle. We can't just, we just can't accept it just from the base of that. And I already kind of addressed that. Uh, that whole thing, the whole, nothing else makes sense for all these pieces to come together. Um, Somebody has said, I'm reading here from G.I. Williamson, who said, some say that they just cannot believe the story of the miracle, but the trouble is that they must then decide what to do with the miracle of the story. 
That is to say, they are left with the insoluble problem of how such a sober story could ever have been written. The story is either true or else it is the product of insanity or wickedness. And after nearly 2,000 years, no one has been able to show that it comes from either insane or wicked men. No satisfactory explanation has come forth except to believe that it actually did happen. Quick overview of the resurrection. I'm going to stop there because I still want to hit on these others (laughs) that are part of Christ's exaltation. Any questions on any of that before we move on? All good? Okay, the second thing that happens after 40 days, what do we have? Okay, the ascension. And the further we go along this, the less attention, I fear, evangelicals have paid to the importance of these things. But they all are in Scripture. They're all very important. In fact, we don't do a a church calendar, but if we did, uh, you know, the the Christians who do that, they they have a a day of ascension that they celebrate along with so many other things. So, right, we get um, Acts chapter 1, verse 10, while they looked uh, steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white garb, And they said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall come in a similar manner as you have seen him go into heaven, right? So there's this idea of his going up and so on. So, um, by the way, if these were imaginary um, uh, visions of Jesus, they just imagined the resurrection, why why would it have ended after 40 days? Right, if you would just continue seeing him, right? And then the next generation would say, oh, I saw him too. If you don't think that happens, um, and I'm sorry if I'm stepping on some toes, go to a Pentecostal church. Do you want to learn to speak in tongues? Go to a Pentecostal church because it's a learned behavior. And when everybody around you begins to do that and you, you know, you'll just, oh. And then you begin to, and then before you know it, they, uh, if, if that had been the one that was happening, the next generation of Christians would have begun having visions too and seeing Jesus. You, you see the point there? How that works? Is that making sense? Okay, just getting a lot of trout looks. Thank you, Chelsea and Matt. You're helping me there with nodding. It makes me feel like I actually prepared for something. No, I'm just joking. Okay, the real thing here... Um, Let's see, given the amount of time. There's a lot we can say about the ascension, more than you might realize. But uh, the key thing here is that there's a real translation of a human body away from the earth. If he really is a human being, then he really did ascend. How? How did he ascend? Was it a, did we imagine? And so, no, I mean, he didn't have a rocket pack or anything like that. There's obviously miraculous stuff. Now, I don't, let me take a moment here to say something I didn't say under resurrection. I don't believe that Jesus, when he's rising from the dead, from the dead, rising from the ground, his disciples are all looking. Uh, I don't believe that he's doing something that everybody can do with their resurrected bodies. Sorry to break it to you, but I think when you are in the new heavens and new earth, you're not going to be able to say, look, ma, (laughs) no hands. And and then you just float up. Okay. I don't think that's the case. We see him, um, okay, the disciples are all behind shuttered doors because they're afraid of, uh, for their safety. Uh, they're being hunted. People that are being hunted don't make up things that get them more hunted, right? And going back to the, oh, I imagine Jesus. Uh, you, and you certainly don't lie about it. And, and you're like, you, you do what Peter says. I, I don't even know the guy. You don't go around saying, I know him and he's alive. And okay, we'll kill you if you keep saying that. And okay, you guys got the point. But they're all behind shuttered doors and all of a sudden Jesus shows up, right? 
I do not believe that this is a Jonathan Livingston Siegel kind of thing. Some of you know what that means. No? No. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, assignment for next week, especially those of you who are teachers. Uh, look up Jonathan Livingston Siegel, a short little book that every seventh grade class uh, should read um, but under supervision because if you don't, you'll get high, uh, li- literally. Um, okay, really, this is not ringing any bells. How about some of us who are a little older? Anybody 45? Okay, I figured some of us 45 and over know that book. It was a cartoon. It was on TV. Okay. So in Jonathan Livingston, no, I can't ruin it for you. Um, the point simply is, I don't believe that it is a function of Jesus' resurrection body to zip into different places and just zoom and just appear. In other words, we will not have that ability. I think what you see Jesus doing there is something miraculous because he's Jesus. Does that make the point? You see the point? Not because he has a resurrected body, but because he's Jesus. Okay, just like his healing people and so on. Okay, you guys got that? So that's the same thing happening here with the ascension. When you're in your resurrected bodies, you don't get to just, you know, kind of thing. But it did happen. It's a miraculous event, and it's the lifting up until Jesus into heaven. Now, why is that important? Uh, First of all, we recognize it really did happen, that uh, the earth uh, became lighter. If If I could weigh the mass... Uh, you can't really weigh the weight. There is no weight to the earth. The earth does not weigh anything. <gasps> What's he talking about? 11th grade physics, you'll get it. But there's a certain mass to the earth. The earth is less massive, right? We're, like, for example, we sent some guys to the moon, um, yet it really did happen, and they all came back, uh, thankfully, but they left stuff over there, right? Flags, uh, part of uh, the... Um, a chunk of, of all the hardware that was launched, not only left on the moon, but on the way to the moon, those sorts of things. The earth is less massive because those things are gone. Of course, it also, earth also picks up mass with meteorites and all that, but that's, you get the idea. They're literally no longer on the earth. When Jesus ascended, there was a real physical body that if I was there, I could measure, I could take its weight, I could see the amount of mass it has, and that mass exited the planet. So that's something that actually did happen. Uh, The question is, okay, so that naturally leads to the third one. How much time do we have? Just enough time. Yes, and you nailed it with the right word. We call that session, the session of Christ. You say, what, he was an elder? Uh, When we talk about the elders get it together, we call it the session. The word session is just from the Latin. It means the sitting down of. So the idea is that elders sit. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. The elders who sat at the gate. It wasn't because they were lazy. It's just that when you sat at the gate, you were in court. That was when you were in session. Your court was in session. So when the elders sat at the gate, it's not that just that they sat there, you know, with uh, just kind of smoking their little pipe and, and then a little bit of grass or whatever. I don't know. You see those pictures, right, of people sitting there with something. I don't know what it is. And wearing a straw hat and... I'm not from Kentucky, I'm sorry. Whatever that image is, it pops in my head. It's not what's happening. They're not just kicking up their heels waiting for somebody to come. They are in session when the elders meet at the gate. Um, that's what's happening in, um, you know, when we talk about the elders gathering, they are in session. When we talk about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, uh, he is in session. 
um, he has sat down and he is um, officiating. He is, uh, you know, the lights are on. We're in business. So that tells us immediately something about Jesus uh, and his, uh, he, he didn't sit there and say, okay, whew, it's done. I got it all done. No, he goes on and he continues working. So while he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, he is carrying out his official duties. Uh, that as, you know, as we already know what those are, prophet, priest, and king. And he's doing those uh, in session. So there is no closed sign uh, for Jesus. He's open for business, as it were, just to use that kind of language. So um, what can we say about this? Is he literally sitting at the right hand of the Father? No, because the Father does not have a right hand, nor a body. So this is clearly descriptive, metaphoric language. What does it mean to be at the right hand? What is that? Yeah, the seat of honor, the place of honor, right? So he is placed in a position of honor. Now you might say, wait a minute. Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. Did he not have that honor? Let's go back to our Philippians 2, 5 through 11. What are we seeing? We're seeing a cycle that he humbled himself how? Say again? Sure, and, but, but he did what? what? What did he do to, took on him before? So in the incarnation, the humiliation of that has to do with humanity. So if his humiliation has to do with humanity, what does his exaltation have to do with? His humanity. He never stopped being God, right? So in that respect, he doesn't lose his glory. But when he says, you know, we read earlier from John seventeen five, when he says, uh, uh, I'm going to return to that glory, give me once again that glory which I had. He's not talking about himself as God. He's talking about in his human form. He is, you know, raised. He's ascended. He's placed in, uh, in, in this position of honor. And it is as man that he is being given this place. Now, think about how absolutely radical that is. We as evangelical Christians have spent a lot of time defending the deity of Christ because that's been under attack since the 1870s, roughly. You know, more than any, any of us have been alive by, by a long measure. But you've heard me say that so often what we've done is we have downplayed the humanity of Jesus. And we have to recapture that to get a balanced, full-orbed view, biblical view of who Jesus is. It is he as a man who is being elevated, who is being exalted, and who is being given this position of honor. And that's the amazing thing. A man rules the universe. Somebody has once said that the dust of Adam sits on the throne of heaven. It's a very eloquent way of putting it. But think about that. That's what the incarnation does. I think I actually spoke about this during my, my, not that you guys would remember, but the Christmas sermons, the series that I gave. I shouldn't have said that. I know you guys are, I'm thinking of people out there that aren't, don't pay attention. I know you guys do. So sorry, did not mean to step on your toes. But um, you might, because I can barely remember what I said in (laughs) December. But um, I think we were talking about the resurrection lifts up all of humanity. And it just doesn't restore it to what it was pre-fall. It elevates it beyond that. And the resurrection seen by the ascension and the session is a very clear picture that what God is doing is not just committing to his creation, 
but giving man a destiny far exceeding even the one we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, we are told to rule over the earth, to be God's vice regent, to represent him on the earth. With Jesus, we see him ruling over all creation from heaven. And he represents us, right? And he's our federal head. He's dead. We are his body. Just, just think about all that. When you look at Ephesians chapter 2, it says that even now we already rule in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's in Ephesians 2, spiritually because of our union with Christ. So we're not literally sitting there yet, but in some way because we are part of his body, even now mystically it can be said. That's an amazing thing. And all that flows out from the idea of the session. Okay. Um, Look at our time here and be sure that we're going to be okay. Okay, so I think we we have time to say this. Um, Having said all that, I asked the question right before here, where is he? And Russ said, you know, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And we went into this whole thing on the session. But where, where is that? And the answer is, we don't know. There is a physical body, a real physical body. It did not dissolve. You know, it did not just cease to exist. There is a real human body somewhere. I don't think we're going to find it if we go to the far side of the moon, you know, anything of that nature. Uh, but it's somewhere. And the, the only question is where, and we're not told. And since we're not told, speculation is probably a waste of time to sit here and try to figure that out. Um, that starts getting into the issue of, you know, uh, well, dimensions, and what does that mean, and where's heaven and that kind of stuff so it goes beyond i think what we're able to to handle it but the point is he really is somewhere um if you grew up in the roman catholic church you know this idea of transubstantiation where the bread and the wine literally become the body of jesus if you're lutheran uh you don't you don't have transubstantiation you have consubstantiation with the bread and the wine do not transform but jesus body still appears in mystical, hazy form around, how did Luther put it, over, under, and around uh, the elements. That's because he couldn't figure out what to do with, this is my body. Um, A few years after Luther um, uh, developed all that, Calvin came along and and said, yes, there is a real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, but it's a spiritual presence. It's not a physical one. He laid that out in 1536 in his first copy, first edition of the Institutes, of the Christian religion, Luther read and said, ah, oh, that's what I needed. That's what, that's what it should have been. Um, and yet by that point, Lutheranism had exceeded, uh, gone beyond Luther, and um, it never did change officially. So when you look at Lutherans and Roman Catholics, their view is it's called the ubiquitous nature of Christ, of his body. His body can be anywhere and everywhere at once. That's actually a denial of Jesus' human body because his body cannot be everywhere. In fact, Jesus says, and that's one of the things that Iman was talking about last week in the sermon, it is to your advantage that I go away. Why is it to our advantage that Jesus goes away? What did Iman say last Sunday? What happens when Jesus goes away? Huh? The Holy Spirit, the helper, there we go. Why is that an advantage? Wouldn't you rather go up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I can see you, I can touch you, I can talk to you. Which, by the way, you can talk to him now, but wouldn't you rather have Jesus right here and you can just sit down with him? What's the problem with that? 
Yeah, he can't. Imagine all the Christians who now exist. We, we, we would literally be making appointments. No, I mean, we would, we would um, get in line and we'd go see him in Jerusalem, you know, or whatever. And, you know, uh, I've got a doctor's appointment coming up this week, but I have to be seen by Jesus sometime in July of next year. So it might be a little late to get, make my request known. This is literally what Jesus is saying. It's to your advantage because I will send the helper. So, you know, we have to kind of wrestle with, with, with the reality of that, that Jesus' body is a human body. And it's a glorified human body, as has been said, it's eternal, without corruption. But it can't be everywhere. And yet, in the view of Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism during the Lord's Supper, Jesus ceases to be human because his body shows up everywhere. So if all the priests were doing the Lord's Supper at once, there would be, just like there's multiple, you know, if you take all the pieces of the cross that are in relic, reliquaries everywhere, you'd have a cross that's like, you know, the size of New York or something. I mean, it's, just, it's ridiculous, right? You know that those are not all the pieces of the cross. The same sort of thing. If Jesus' body was everywhere all at once, I mean, he'd be like a 20-ton human or whatever. It's not, it's not real. So that's, that's one of the major points. Okay. Um, do I want to say? No, we don't have time to get into that one. We'll skip that. Uh, let's go on to the last one. Any questions about the session? All good? Okay, and the very last thing that it says in the catechism question that's coming? Judgment. And notice I'm putting these in some very simple statements. I didn't do that last week, but these are ones that we are less familiar with. And I want to make them memorable. Resurrection, the ascension, the session, and the judgment. And this is a big point because... I think sometimes we get embarrassed by this and we downplay it. But the judgment is very real. And Jesus is coming. And yes, he is going to judge our behaviors. And yes, there will be consequences for that. Like I said, I think we sometimes become embarrassed. Oh, God is a nice God. He's, he would never do anything bad to anyone. Well, you know what? That's true. He doesn't do anything bad. But punishing people is not necessarily something bad. Usually that comes... Uh, from people who have not experienced bad things happening to them. And when they do, I often find it very interesting that the very same people who are out there crying for, uh, right now, for letting certain people have equity, which is just an excuse for you can kill, maim, and destroy, you know, uh, without uh, uh, any consequences, they'll back that until what? Until it happens to them. Then what do they want? Justice! <laughs> so, uh, and then it's not bad. Then it's a good thing, that, that kind of stuff. All right. Um, so let's talk about the judgment. It's a real thing. What can we say about it? I'm not going to get into a whole lot of detail, but there's several things that stand out. One of those is that you do not know when it will happen. You. All, any of us do not know, right? Mark, uh, Matthew 24, verse 36. Of oh, that day and hour, no man knows. Now, I think, this is Jesus speaking in the Olivet Discourse, I think that is pretty clear. No one knows. So when somebody sits there and says, I know, now you have to make a choice. Do I believe Hal Lindsey or whoever? Or do I believe Jesus? It's just, it's not hard, guys. It's not hard. I just say, okay. Uh, Mark thirteen thirty two. Uh, our Lord himself did not know when it would be, you know, when, when it would happen. Uh, well, we don't have, yeah. 
Okay, we can read that some other time. We're going to run out of time. Uh, let me just jump to Acts 1-7. It is not for you to know the, time, the times or the seasons uh, which the Father has put in his own power. Okay, so what can you say about the judgment? No one knows when. So you can guarantee that when somebody tells you when, they are wrong. No one knows when, right? What's the second thing that we can say about the judgment unequivocally from Scripture? That no sign will be given. No sign will be given. What? I'm going to run out of room here. I can already tell. Now, this one, again, I'm spending time on this because uh, there's a whole craze built around, you know, trying to figure this out. But there is no sign that will tell you beforehand. Mm-hmm. Okay. Matthew 24 and 25 represent something that we call the Olivet Discourse. He was on the Mount of Olives. He spoke about um, a number of things, including his uh, return. I did a whole Sunday school class on that one time. I mean, not like one session, but a whole class. In the Olivet Discourse, it starts with them leaving the temple. The temple's magnificent, it's beautiful, it's all this. And the disciples are like, oh, isn't it, ma- you know, isn't it magnificent? Isn't it wonderful? And Jesus says, I mean, I don't like, I don't the blue because they're all there, you know, looking at the beauty of it, walking out, having just worshiped and so on. And Jesus out of the blue says, you know what? It's going to be all gone pretty soon. It's going to be destroyed. For it to be destroyed, I mean, this is where God dwells. See, they hadn't still figured out that Jesus is the final temple, right? As we read about it in John uh, in chapter two. He is the final temple. He is uh, the manifestation of God in the flesh. They hadn't figured all that out yet. So for in their mind is, if the temple's destroyed, that's the end of the age. Jesus is coming back, or, or not coming back, but God is gonna bring in his, his kingdom in all its glory. So they're like, when is this gonna happen, Jesus? And he answers that question. And in the process of answering it, he tells them certain things that many people have confused with the end of the age. So he talks about one will be out working in the field, the other one will be home, one will be doing this, one will be doing that, and some will be taken, and the others will be caught, right? All that language. And so people often think, oh, that's a reference to his return. But he goes out of his way. If you read the Olivet Discourse, you'll see he goes out of his way to say, that's not it. In fact, he says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, but that's not the end yet. And what happens? You know, all you have to do is sign on to Twitter and see somebody... (gasps) Look, it's happening. Because I, and then they see a sign. They see a war or a rumor of a war or things are so bad it must be the end of the age. And everything Jesus is saying is you can't tell from those things because those things are going to be normal from this point on. So we can't tell and yet somehow we can tell. And that's what's been going on for so long. You got people listening there, oh, I see it now. I see it. And Jesus is saying, whatever you're seeing, you're not. So no sign is coming. What Jesus is talking about, uh, there's not a class on that, but what Jesus is talking about in the Olivet Discourse primarily is the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And it happened exactly like he laid out. And in fact, um, the, uh, the Christians who heeded what he said were able to escape Jerusalem before the Roman armies arrived and not only destroyed the, uh, the temple, they sacked all of Jerusalem and killed its inhabitants and, you know, Christianity would have been wiped out had they not heard and understood what Jesus was saying. So 
the first Christians did not make the mistake. They understood what he was saying. They did not confuse it with his return. Does Jesus address his return in there? Yes, he does. After he lays out all the examples about, um, not examples, but uh, predictions, his prophetic role of the destruction of the temple, he says, but of that day, the one that you were asking me about at the beginning, because you confused it, you said, when will, you know, when will the, the kingdom come? But of that day, no one knows. And then he goes on. And so somehow, we know. Okay, we don't. And that's the key thing. No one knows when. No sign will be given of his coming. Uh, let's see. Let's fit in a few more things. Okay, we don't have time to fit in a few more things. We'll have to throw these out. So, you know, First Thessalonians 5, 3. When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. So this, what do we see? The, the, the third thing is that it's going to be sudden. Can I put it up here? I'm out of room down there. I know that doesn't look good, but you guys can handle it. So no one knows when he's coming for judgment. No sign will be given so that you can tell in advance. It's going to be sudden. All right, I already told you that from First Thessalonians 5.3. Uh, we also know, I'm going to just rip through these, it's going to be public. Everybody will be aware. It's not going to be something that you'll be sitting there and saying, oh, Jesus came last Tuesday? Nobody told me. No, everybody will know. It'll, now, how will that be? I've been told, what happens if Jesus comes? Because we all imagine he's going to come here, right? So what happens on the other side of the world? Are they going to see him? You know, and if he's going to be coming in the clouds, we're all going to see him and, uh, you know, the earth is not flat. Oh, these stupid people back then, they all thought the earth was flat. That's what it means. No, it just means that it's going to be public. I don't know exactly what it means, what it's going to be like. I can't tell you definitively. I have an idea. I think it's going to be kind of like a, you know, like a rolling thing. He'll show up somewhere. I'm going to guess. This is a guess because the angels say the same way you saw him go. This, this, he'll come back. He's standing outside of Jerusalem. I have a feeling he's going to kind of come back near Jerusalem. And then he's going to do like a, this rolling thing. And, you know, he'll be gathering us all up and there'll be more and more. Look, we're pretty much the ends of the earth. So we're probably going to be last. And he's going to kind of show up with all these. And we're going to be, ah, and we're all going to see it. So it's public, okay? Public. Um, and then the last thing we want to say. Oh, two more things we want to say. Dead will be raised. Okay, there's so many passages that say that. I'm not going to get into that. Dead raised. And then the actual judgment. Uh, Jesus himself says after the Olivet Discourse, remember the end of the Olivet Discourse at the end of chapter 24, he said, then says of that day, and then he goes on and in chapter 25, he actually deals with it, talks about separating the sheep from the goats, the idea of a distinction being made between people. So we're gonna stop there just because we're out of time. Um, that pretty much brings us to the end of our study for this semester. Uh, we'll be resuming um, question 29 uh, when we start up again in September. So hold on to all that, memorize all those questions. Um, and I don't think we have really time to deal with questions now. But if you have some, just grab me afterwards or, you know, uh, as you're able. So let me go ahead and close with prayer. Father, we thank you for this teaching that reminds us of the importance, not just of, teach, of Jesus' humiliation, what it meant that he became a human being, what it meant that he died in our place uh, paying the price that we owe you for our sin. But how important it is also re to recognize his uh, exaltation, uh, that he was raised from the dead, and in so doing, uh, the first salvo of the restoration of the world uh, happened at that moment. We're thankful for his ascension, uh, because only through his ascension uh, do we now have the Holy Spirit. 
uh, granted to each and every one of us wherever we might be in the world. We're thankful for his session that he sits at the right hand of the Father. From there he can rule and he can intercede and he can continue to serve us. And we're thankful for uh, the fact that he will return one day bodily uh, for a judgment and all of that means. We don't know when it is, so help us right now to begin to live uh, in a way that, uh, uh, that would honor Christ during that time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.